I want to start by recapping quickly what we've looked at in the passages on evangelism from the New Testament. Uh, From John chapter 3, we saw that when teaching a teacher, illustrate well without assuming. We don't need all of the answers to call the rich or powerful or knowledgeable to faith in God. And sometimes our assumptions about them are wrong. Either way, they need Jesus. From Acts 3 and 14, we saw that we should know our audience and point them to God. Religious people need usually to be called away from self-righteousness to humbly trust in Jesus using themes of humility versus their pride and fear about the consequences of their sin versus thinking they're perfectly fine. Pagan people need to often be called away from idol worship to trust the one through God through the one true God through Jesus using themes of creation and judgment so they don't trust their idols and so they fear God properly not their idols. We'll see something of that today as well. Last week from John 4, we saw Jesus tired after a journey. Even or maybe especially in moments when we're tired, we should seek the unlikely by engaging them spiritually. Sooner or later, if we faithfully seek people and try to know and love them as Jesus did, we will see God work. This week, we return to the book of Acts, and we'll get to chapter 17. But first, let me ask you something. How many of you kill time? I wasn't looking for raised hands, but thanks for that. I was thinking of this phrase earlier this week when I realized I'd just said it. So after I drop off the kids, I have about 45 minutes before I teach my eighth grade Bible class. Uh, Last school year, I had almost an hour and a half, which was nice because I had a stretch to get certain things done, start and finish a project, but it also kind of made it very late start for the day after doing things at school. This year, it's a little bit harder to do that. Some days are really busy. This past Wednesday... Uh, I was finishing building the third bookshelf in the fellowship hall. I grabbed lunch for Maggie because she forgot her lunch, and I went and got a tool for Harbor Freight, and I still made it back within the 45 minutes, and so that was a big rush. But on other days, it's really tempting to say, I only have half hour, 45 minutes to get some things done, so I have some time to kill. Does it really matter if I look at Facebook, shop on Amazon, text someone casually about a funny picture or something like that? Is it really time to kill? Paul didn't think so. Acts 17, verse 16 says he was waiting, but also watching the needs of the people of Athens. From this verse and the rest of the story in Acts 17, I think we see this idea, don't waste your waiting. That could be a John Piper book, but I didn't think steal it from him. Don't waste your waiting. Instead, call pagans to the one true God. We start out by doing this by laying the groundwork for future conversations. Obviously, this is geared more toward a scenario, not the, not the I'm passing by someone for five minutes kind of scenarios, but someone that you're going to have regular contact with or be, you know, maybe you're going to do a job in a particular area for two or three weeks. Lay the groundwork for future conversations. First of all, by letting God stir your heart. I think we see this in verse 16. It says his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. And that might sound like it's just something that Paul is doing. But if if his spirit is being provoked about idolatry, it's to the degree he's sharing God's attitude toward idolatry that it's a problem and it's something that needs to be dealt with. I think we recognize that if we're tired or discouraged and self-focused in those moments of being tired or discouraged, we're not really going to be looking for ministry opportunities. 
But if you see God's hand in your present circumstance, you will, I think, have your eyes open with compassion for the lost and alongside that passion for them to come to know God. So when we look at Paul in Acts 17, he's just fled for his life because Jews came down from Berea to Thessalonica to try to kill him. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy to get to Athens so they can continue their journey together. It would be really easy for you or I if we were Paul to say, hey, I just got out of jail at Philippi. Hey, people are constantly after me. I need a break. But notice Acts 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So instead of taking the easy way out, saying this is vacation, I'm just waiting until they get here so then we can all go forward together. Paul, I think in a right way, seems to have been unable to ever 100% relax and not care about what was going on around him. We can push that too far. We can burn ourselves out. But the reality is, sooner or later, our lives, our resources, our money, our health are all going to be used up. So what are we spending it on if it's a finite resource? Paul was spending it on things that mattered for eternity. Not just let God stir your heart, but get out and talk to people. Because it's, it's, it's good and well if you are singing a song like the one we sang this morning that talks about the fact that God is going to save people and we need to get out there and be soldiers for God and all that sort of thing. And you, in, in the moment right here in the pew, you say, yes, let's get out there and do something. And then you drive out from here and you go home and you take a nap and you say, oh, there's this thing I need to do on the house. And then you just sort of fall back into normal routines. Now, is it good to take a nap? Sometimes we need one. Is it good to keep up things in the house? Yes, because houses are in a constant state of falling apart, and we have to try to prevent that. But And we have to go to work. We have to do the normal routines. But to the extent that moments that we experience hearing God's word or singing a song about great truth or whatever are just temporary fleeting things, we got to actually follow through and do the work. So get out and talk to people. We see that Paul was talking with religious people in the synagogue and with pagans in the marketplace in verse 17. His audience includes philosophers, verse 18, who had a response both of mocking and of curiosity. And the curiosity led to an invitation to explain Jesus at this gathering place, the Areopagus. I don't know how many times I've read this story, quite a few between regular Bible reading and teaching Acts in the Christian school. And, and even here, it's easy to read this passage and think Paul lands in Athens, goes straight to the, this place, and starts preaching about Jesus. But instead, he's taking time to engage with religious people, Jewish people in the synagogue, and God-fearing Gentiles who maybe weren't fully proselytes or converts to Judaism, but they were trending that direction. But he also takes time to go to the marketplace. He's talking to pagan Gentiles. And in the marketplace, I believe he encounters these um, Greek philosophers. Notice the contrast between what's happening here. You have Epicureans. And sometimes people think Epicureans, that their goal was to just um, go to excess. So if we're going to drink, we're going to get really drunk. If we're going to experience physical pleasure, we're just going to try to do that every day, all day long. And the reality for the Epicureans was their philosophy was to try to, as best I understand it, to maximize pleasure. 
So for them, maybe they got a certain feeling if they drank this amount of wine, and then they felt really sick if they drank a greater amount of wine. They would say, I'm going to exercise some measure of self-control because I want the pleasant feeling, but not all the aftermath and the consequences. They had a, a, an a unbiblical, immoral view of human relationships, and so they didn't see anything wrong with things like adultery and so forth, but their goal was not to, like some people today, I'm going to try to be with as many people as possible, as much as possible. Their goal was to try to ride the line between something that would reduce their pleasure, like some kind of disease, or just physical exhaustion, instead to maximize the pleasure. So that was their outlook on life. I want to live life in such a way that I can get the fullest out of it and enjoy it as much as possible. On the other hand, you had the Stoics. And sometimes people use that word today, the idea of someone being Stoic, that they're just very somber and sober. For the Stoics, it was less about being just serious all the time, and I think more about the idea that in their religious practice, the fates decided things that were going to take place, and it was kind of pointless to argue against what was going to happen. And so if you accepted what was going to happen and then worked things out in response to the things that came into your life, it was much less frustrating than if you were always fighting against what the fates in their pagan religion had brought into life. And so you had people who wanted to maximize pleasure and you had people who wanted to take life as it came. And here you have Paul, who's a Christian, who says, trust God who raises the dead. And that doesn't fit in with either of their philosophies. Their response then is mixed. This guy's crazy. What does this idle babbler want to say? Or he's teaching a Jewish God. He seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. You're preaching a God, which is intriguing to us, but you're not preaching any of our gods, so where's this coming from? Paul doesn't, I think it's important to notice here, he doesn't reject their questions that fall short of true conversion. He's willing to keep talking with them. There are people who, verse 21 says, they love to hear what's new and different. So he takes advantage of that and points them to the truth instead of just a new philosophy. There are things that are wrong in our culture that sometimes we feel like we have to immediately fix instead of saying, this is an opportunity. Right? So, for example, in our present day culture that's very fixated on physical pleasure and human sexuality and all of these sorts of things, it's easy for us to say these things are immoral. And they are. We need to get rid of them. But that's not something you and I can accomplish. If we look at it instead as an opportunity, like Paul did in a place like Corinth, to say there's a very clear line between someone who is following after Jesus and saying I will be faithful and committed and, and follow what he's called me to do, even though everybody around me is doing something different, that's an opportunity. So instead of taking this, this attitude that's like everything in culture is wrong and everything needs to be violently opposed, I guess when I say violently, maybe I mean more like um, energetically, right? Uh, everything needs to be energetically opposed. This is what I believe on this issue, and what you're doing is wrong. And Sometimes we need to pause and say, why is someone living in this way? 
In Paul's day, when he talks to the philosophers in Athens, he sees that they are curious about the world, but they're going to the wrong place to get the truth about how it all fits together. So he says, let me take that curiosity and point it toward God. In our society, there are a lot of people whose lives are miserable because they've chased after what secular philosophy and pagan religion has to offer. If we can, instead of coming down and saying, immediately going to, here's this big sin that you do that really offends me and really offends God and you need to change it, they're not going to be able to do that apart from God's grace and true conversion. And they're not going to want to listen to you if that's the first thing that you bring up. There is a sense in which you can disarm their objections by treating them as human beings like we saw last week with the woman at the well who is living in immorality and Jesus treats her as an everyday regular person. And by pointing them to the basic truths about God instead of the reasons why God is unhappy with them. Now, do we need to get to sin? Yes. Do we need to get to that sin, whatever that sin is? Eventually, yes. But I think sometimes we think that we're going to take away the sin, and then when they stop doing the sin, then they're cleaned up and they can be here with us at church. And the pattern that Paul lays out for us is, instead of trying to take away the bad thing that they're doing and fix everything that's wrong about their culture, use whatever it is that is revealing the wrongness and the brokenness in their lives to point them to God who offers hope and truth and all of those kinds of things. So not only lay the groundwork for more conversation, but, and this is the bigger part of the chapter, when your chance comes, preach the God they don't know. When your chance comes, preach the God they don't know. Start doing this by getting their attention. Look at verses 22 and 23. Hey, you guys are very religious. That would have gotten their attention. Well, yeah, we are. Okay. I visited your exhibits of worship. Wow, he took time to look at all of our temples and our museums and whatever else. Okay. Paul says, guess what I noticed? You worship a God that you don't know. Paul didn't start out by saying, you guys are idiots because you're worshiping all these idols. Was that true? Yes, idolatry is stupid. But Paul doesn't start there. Why did Elijah go there? Because God's people knew better and they still were being stupid and worshiping idols. So that's when Elijah comes in and he says, hey, why isn't your God answering you? Hanging out in the bathroom too long? Why isn't your God answering you? Maybe he went on vacation and forgot about you guys. Why isn't your God answering you? Maybe he's taking a nap. You guys are, why are you worshiping a foolish God? That's the attitude that you take when people who should know better persist in stupidity of idolatry, right? But when you have pagans who are ignorantly persisting in the stupidity of idolatry, there probably needs to be a fair bit more grace and attempting to explain the truth about the one true God to people. So they had an altar to the unknown God. A lot of people would say this is to avoid offending a God they don't know yet, and that's probably reasonable. 
The other possibility that comes to mind is that they felt like they couldn't know him. So to the God who is unknowable, something along those lines, there are people who have that idea today. There might be a God, but how could we possibly know him? So Paul says, yes, you can. You can know him, and let me tell you more about him. And they're interested to hear this because, verse 19, this is a new teaching. Verse 21, they spent all their time telling and hearing something new. Paul says, you want to know something you don't know? They say, yeah, tell us. Start by getting their attention. Proclaim basic truths about the world that they probably don't know. Maybe they do. And there's a degree to which every last person knows that there is a God. And they know that there's right and wrong. Romans 1 and 2 makes that clear. But sometimes we've ignored that for so long that we've forgotten those basic truths that we all should know as human beings. Or we think that we don't know them because people have lied to us for so long. And so a basic reminder of these things is important. So what does Paul say? One God made the world, verses 24 through 26. Where is he proclaiming this? He's proclaiming this on, sometimes people call it Mars Hill or the Hill of Ares. This is the, depending on if you're talking the Greeks or the Romans, they called the same God concept different names, the God of War. So here's one pagan god, a spot that's dedicated to this one pagan god, a gathering place to discuss all these various philosophies and reflect on what the gods are like. Paul says, nope, not one god of many, but one god only who made everything. I make some important points about that one god. Since God made everything, he doesn't need a house, he doesn't need a temple. Why do gods need a house or a temple? Well, the pagan concept of a god is that that God is in some way um, dependent on the worship of his or her followers and apart from that loses some degree of power or recognition. How do we know that this is the case? Well, we see it a little bit later in Acts chapter 19 when Paul is at Ephesus. And they said, Our prosperity depends on the business of making idols and shrines of Artemis. There is danger that our trade falls into disrepute, but the temple of the great goddess Artemis could be regarded as worthless, and she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. So the pagan concept is my god, my goddess needs my worship or is going to lose ground to some other deity. Which raises all sorts of fascinating questions, like, if your god or your goddess can get knocked over, should you be worshiping him? But that's not where Paul goes just yet. He says, since God made the world, he doesn't need a temple. He made the things that you use. You don't make the things that he needs or uses. Which, why didn't Paul say this to a Jewish audience? Perhaps in part because... They were already upset about the things that he was saying about the temple. They misunderstood Jesus' words about the temple, and they weren't necessarily in a place where they could hear this. But the Gentile audience needed to hear, your God doesn't need a temple. The true God doesn't need a temple like your false God does. God was going to, in time, show the Jewish people that they didn't need a temple either to worship God at. We saw the preview of that when we looked at John 4. God made it all, so he doesn't need you to build stuff for him. Secondly, since God made it, he doesn't need priests to do things for him. 
Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. And this is a really easy thing to happen. Well, God needs priests because God can't do it himself. Or in their day, why did they need priests? Well, somebody's got to eat the food people have left out as an offering for the gods, right? So it might as well be me. Somebody's got to vicariously, like in the place of the God, enjoy the act of physical pleasure in the sort of this pagan orgy kind of worship. So why not the priest and the priestesses? They can be the ones who enjoy the thing. I mean, maybe the God takes advantage of it, maybe not, but I mean, we might as well take advantage of this. It, all, it becomes all about what the priests can gain for themselves purportedly on behalf of the gods, but not really. And they would claim, well, we're serving the gods by doing these things that benefit us. And that's highly suspicious, but Paul's point is the true God doesn't need people to serve him. Which again, why doesn't he say this to a Jewish audience? Because they were already accusing him of saying God's getting rid of the temple and the priest. And while that was true to some degree that God was, because Jesus is the high priest, and they didn't need the temple, and they were worshiping the temple instead of God, God had appointed priests for his people, and he does talk in the New Testament about people becoming priests, serving under him. But the idea is not serving as priests because God needs you to do stuff for him. I think it's really easy for us to confuse the difference between God saying, I want you to do this for me, and saying, if you don't do this for me, there's no way it can happen. Mordecai makes this point to Esther. Hey, Esther, I think God's put you here because he wants to use you to save the people of Israel. But if you're stubborn and you don't want to do it, the king can get tired of you and get rid of you and God can put somebody else here. He's going to take care of his people either way. Right? If you don't tell people about Jesus, God can use someone else to tell that person about Jesus. If you don't follow God with your life the way that he wants you to do, other people will, even if you don't. But God has appointed you because he wants you to serve him, not because he needs you to serve him, because he's lacking something in some way. And then Paul says thirdly to them, under this idea of one God making the world, since God made the world, he decides the course of nations. Verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Their concept of gods was our gods are geographically limited gods. Here's the God who lives on this mountain. Here's the God who lives in this nation state. There's a different God over there. Sometimes we're going to fight. We'll see whose God is stronger. Paul says, nope, one God made the world, which means you are in Greece because God put you in Greece and they're in Asia Minor because God put them in Asia Minor and God knew how all of these things was, were going to unfold and God allowed this nation to conquer that nation and caused that nation to conquer the other nation and you think it's you doing it and it's actually God overseeing it all. So one God made the world, which means he doesn't need you to build him a house. He doesn't need you to be his priests. And you're not actually determining the fate of your people the way that you think that you are. Quick aside, those are important reminders for us in the context of our nation. 
God is not honored by us building him big houses. God is not honored by us having complicated rituals. And God is not dependent on our efforts to build a nation or cast it down. So the true God has made everything, but it doesn't stop there. The true God wants people to know him, verses 27 through 29. Why did God make the world and all the things in it? And why did God put the people where he put them? That they would seek God, though he is near, verse 27. They would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. We could argue about what exactly this looks like, because if God wanted people to find him, why didn't he send... um, angels to reach every last people group all at the same time why didn't he write it in letters in the sky in flaming fire or something like that those are not really the questions paul's trying to answer here and those are not questions you and i can ultimately answer because to us it doesn't necessarily make sense that the way god tells people about what he's doing in the world is he sends imperfect messengers who sometimes don't do their job you look at the people of israel what were they supposed to do be different than other nations show god's holiness Proclaim the God that you worship so that all the nations will be drawn to him. What did they do? They said, yeah, we'd rather be like those other nations and not follow God, even though he's picked us out. So God uses imperfect messengers who often don't do their jobs, and we don't necessarily fully understand that, and yet God does want people to seek after him. And then we could get into an argument about, well, how could people seek after him if they are sinners and they're dead in their sins and they don't actually want to seek after god and that too is another mystery or paradox that we could talk about but i think it ties in with what solomon says in ecclesiastes god has put eternity in your heart every person who lives knows there is something out there greater there is every person who's born has a concept of god they look around at creation And little kids have a sense of this. Why is the sky blue? Why do the leaves fall off the trees? In our modern era, we say, well, we have all the answers. It's because of the angle of the light rays coming through the water vapor or lack thereof, given the particular mix of gases in the atmosphere, that's why the sky is blue. Yeah, but why is it set up that way? Well, I just told you. No, you didn't really answer the question. You gave me an explanation of the immediate circumstance, but you didn't explain why it's that way. What's the answer of why is the sky blue? God made it blue. What's the answer of why do the leaves fall off the tree? Well, because of a response to temperature, and then the sap stops flowing, and then the tree goes into a state of dormancy, so it doesn't need the leaves, and so instead of produce... No, why does it do that? Because God made it that way. That's Paul's point. God wants you to seek after him. Despite the many obstacles, I haven't heard the message. I want to go my own way. God still wants you to seek after him, even though he is near. And this is another of those mysteries. Why would God want you to look for him if he's already right there? Because there's a difference between God being right there and God's people people in the world having a relationship with him. Paul explains this further. He he wants people to seek after him because we exist because of him and for him. Verse 28, In him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are his children. 
because the true God wants people to know him, because he's made the world, being then the children of God, we ought not think the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. If you try to worship a God who made everything by making something to worship him, it doesn't work. Because you cannot adequately capture who he is. And in worshiping the him by means of a thing that you've made, sooner or later, you start worshiping the thing you've made and not the God it's supposed to represent. Paul says you can't worship him with idols or your own image. So the, the shrine that you set up to the unknown God, that's not how God wants you to know him. The desire to know him is good. The means of knowing him is not that. We have to worship him as he truly is. C.S. Lewis says in the Screwtape Letters where the supposedly the, the fictional character who's the more experienced demon is teaching the less experienced demon, here's how you tempt people. Get them distracted. Get them to pray to a crucifix or a picture on the wall. Or, you know, he said, there's this one person that I've had great success with. His concept of God is a space three feet up on the wall and two feet over from his bed where he kneels down and he looks at that spot on the wall and when he thinks God, he thinks that spot on his wall in his room. The demon in, in Lewis's fictional book says, we're in trouble if they ever get to a point where they say something like this, not as I imagine you to be, but as you truly are, I worship you, God. And there's a sense that Paul's making this point. You can't capture God in an idol. You can't worship him according to your own imagination. You have to worship him as he has revealed himself to be and realize that your concept of that is probably going to fall far short of the majesty of who he is. So keep coming back to what he said. Don't try to force him into this small picture that you would make of him. It's interesting that sometimes people have questioned Paul's use of a pagan author in verse 28, as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Paul is using illustrations they can connect with and using common grace or knowledge of God that was present even among people who wouldn't admit to knowing anything about God. Let me make a point of clarification. This is not an excuse for and stupid series in churches of sermons or of skits or whatever. You know, when I was a teenager, I think, it was, let's find Jesus in the Matrix movie. More recently, it's been things like, let's find biblical themes from Pixar films. Our job is not to try to force Jesus into a pagan representation of their beliefs, but rather to recognize that sooner or later someone has to acknowledge something true about God when they're talking or in the movie that they make or in the art that they make or whatever else, and you can point to that and say that's there because there's a God who's made the world. I was reading a book on probability one time, and I don't think it was a Christian author, but they acknowledged the fact that there is a concept that God controls things and so probability shouldn't work. Point to something like that and say, hey, have you ever thought about this? What does Jesus have to do with math? We're supposed to use the culture that we know to point people to Jesus. This is not, I think, an invitation or a command to go out and immerse ourselves in the culture and know everything about the culture just so we have illustrations to use with people. 
right? Because you and I, uh, we get enough encounters with culture that we're going to find those points that we can use. And if you get saved later in life, you probably already have plenty of the world's philosophy and allusions to secular novels and movies and all those sorts of things that you don't have to like go study up on it and, and now I've got my, my set of illustrations. But to the extent that you already have those illustrations, use them and say, here's how this shows this thing about God. You, you don't want to admit it, but the fact that you said this shows that you know that there's a God. On the subject of apologetics, all we're doing if we follow Paul's example here is using things unbelievers have said to show how it lines up with God's truth or how what they say can't originate from their worldview but does fit with a Christian worldview. What I mean by that is, um, I was just reading something here right as the service started. And it was a quote from a Montessori school article on this encounter of Paul in Athens. And it said, what Paul was saying here was to show that the Greek people were really close to God and they just needed that little nudge to have a little bit more faith. That is not at all what this passage is saying. Paul is saying, you have no idea what you're worshiping, so let me tell you who you need to worship. He's not saying, you guys are almost there, let me just give you a little nudge. So we're not trying to say, hey, you know what? All you've got to do is add a little bit more truth about God to what you already know, and now you're good. We have to, like Paul, say, you don't know who God is. You have bits and fragments, but you don't know how they all fit together. You need to set aside your false concept of God that says build him a shrine over in that empty corner. Instead, you need to say, Wow, he's the God who made the world, not just ruling over this little part where we live? I didn't realize that. And you need to set aside your idea that you can confine God in a little building. Or that God is dependent on you bringing him food or he'll starve to death. Or that it all just sort of happens and no one knows why. Set aside all those things and worship the one true God. That's what Paul's doing here. And he does that not just by getting their attention, not just by reminding them about things about God that they either don't know or have forgotten or refuse to acknowledge, but then, then by calling them to repentance. We see this in verse 30 and 31. God has been patient. And that's often where we don't start, right? We're just like, you're a sinner. Stop. Turn away from your sin. I think we would do well to remind people God is patient. It says in verse 30, having overlooked the times of ignorance. That doesn't mean that God didn't care about it, but God let a lot of pagan cultures go for a really long time before he brought judgment to them. The Canaanites. All the time the people of Israel are down in, in Egypt. The people of Israel. All the time they're going their own way before God sends them into exile. So God's disposition is to be patient with sinners. Peter says it's easy to confuse God's patience towards sinners with weakness or with forgetfulness. Peter says God hasn't forgotten and God is more than capable of dealing with sin. So God's patience is not an excuse to keep sinning. It's an opportunity, so take it. Paul then says he wants all men everywhere to repent. And notice that it says he is declaring to men that they should repent. This is an element of command. It's not... 
And we've talked about this before. It's not, well, you know what? Jesus is there pleading with you on the doorstep of your heart. Please, please will you let me in? Here's the picture. If we want to use the Jesus into your heart idea, which is maybe not the best illustration because I think it's confusing for a lot of people, but if we want to, if we want to use it, here's what it looks like. Jesus is on your doorstep. It's time. Are you going to let me in? Or are you going to face my wrath? When we present the gospel to people, we need to recognize the urgency of it. And this is difficult, right? Because I just got done saying, this is a conversation Paul is having with people over probably the course of weeks, at least days, if not weeks. How do you know when it's the moment you've got to say, you've got to trust Jesus now because you don't have tomorrow. And when you say, we're going to talk about this again. I can't answer that for you. And we need God's wisdom, and sometimes we're wrong. We think we know and we don't. But whether it's a long-term relationship or whether it's a really brief encounter, we have to stress the urgency of the gospel. Don't wait too long to bring Jesus into the conversation. And don't feel like you have to force the opportunity. And it takes God's wisdom to figure out how all that fits together. Call them to repentance because God has been patient, but a day of judgment is coming. Why should people repent? Sometimes we'll say to people, you need to be saved. They're like, from what? Why? Someone who doesn't think they're drowning doesn't want you to throw them a rope. Someone who doesn't think they're dying doesn't want you to try to fix their disease. There has to be a degree both that we're clear about the realities of sin and that we, um, we pray fervently for the Spirit of God to, to convict them of the sinfulness of their lives. Because until that happens, they're not going to want Jesus the way that they need to. But there is a day of judgment coming. He's going to judge the world in righteousness, which means nobody's getting off the hook just because they hid away in the corner and they got missed, right? I think we all realize that people who are in authority over us can't be there 100% of the time. Your parents, your boss, whoever, you can get away with stuff, right? Paul's saying there's a day coming when the standard by which God judges is going to be righteousness. Nobody's getting away with anything. And this is the person that God has appointed. And how do we know that this is going to happen? Because he sent him to die and then he raised him from the dead. So if he sent him to die, raised him from the dead, and he said he's going to come back, then he's going to come back. If he said he's going to judge the world, then he's going to judge the world. So what does that mean? You need to be ready for that day. If we don't get to this point of repentance, it doesn't matter 
based on what we said on Wednesday nights and also on Sundays, how observant we've been of someone's background and culture and beliefs or how we've connected examples from their authors or spokespeople with biblical truth, as Paul does here. We have to call people to repentance. It does no good to have this really clever discussion and then just say, okay, and walk away. We have to call people to repentance. We're going to get different responses. What were the responses? When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, to mock, to say, this is ridiculous. Others were curious. We'll hear you again concerning this. But some joined and believed, including one of the philosophers. How do I know he's one of the philosophers? Because his name is Dionysius the Areopagite. He's a guy that hung out in the Areopagus. One of the philosophers trusts Jesus. The different responses shouldn't have been discouraging. If one person trusts Jesus from you proclaiming the gospel, it was worth doing. And if that person eventually trusts Jesus, even if you never knew about it, because it happens after a time being around them, then it's worth it. The point, as we've thought about many times, is not that the, the mark of it being successful is that everybody who hears the message in a group setting like this that we're talking about here uh, believes right away. The test of it is whether we've clearly said, here's who God is, here's what you need to do. Are you killing time? Think back over the last week or if you can remember it, the last month, and ask yourself, how many times have I been in a waiting room at the doctor's office, in a line at the grocery store, at the pump, at the gas station? Something going on outside in the yard, and I'm waiting for the weather to be right, but I see my neighbor out there. on a car ride somewhere with someone? How many times have you been waiting for anywhere between 30 seconds to half a day? And you said, I'm waiting. So that's what I'm doing. I'm waiting. I'm just going to kill time. There are lots of distractions that will easily fill in that supposedly empty time. But when you and I stand before God, God's not going to say, hey, did you enjoy killing time while you were waiting for that thing? He's going to say, if we have been diligent with that time that he's given to us, well done, good and faithful servant. And if we haven't, then we might be like what it describes in 1 Corinthians 3. All of the things that we have built, all of our supposed accomplishments in life, get scorched like a house that's dry and old and ready to burn and all that's left is a few blocks from the foundation and we get into heaven but with the smell of smoke on our clothes. Which one do you want that to be for you? We need times to rest. We need times to relax. My point is just a lot of times we're like Paul, waiting on somebody else, waiting for something else, and we're not using that time very well. Say, but I'm tired. But I don't feel like it. Well, what did we see last week? 
Jesus was tired and probably didn't feel like it to talk to the woman at the well, and he shared Jesus with her, and a whole bunch of people trusted in God. But I don't know what to say. Hopefully, the last four weeks we've seen, you don't have to answer every last question that people have. You just have to tell people, here's Jesus, and I know him, and you need to know him too. Here's the one true God who made the world. He's appointing a day when he's going to send his son back. His son offers salvation now and judgment later. Which one are you going to experience? That's a really simple message. Anybody who knows Jesus can share that message with somebody else. You can be five years old and say, Jesus paid for my sins. You should believe him. You can be 85. You can have five degrees. You can have no degrees as far as education. You can be rich. You can be poor. You can be a man. You can be a woman, a boy or a girl. It doesn't matter. All of those things have no bearing on whether or not you and I can tell people about Jesus. The question most of the time is not, am I capable of doing this? The question is, am I just going to waste the time God has given me because I think there's not enough time to get anything meaningful done? or realize that we can fit a lot of really important things into a lot of short, inconvenient moments. Don't waste your waiting. Instead, call pagans to the one true God. Let's pray. Father, as I said earlier in the message, I don't know why you have entrusted this task to people who quite often are not always the best at it. But I suspect the reason has something to do with parents entrusting their children with tasks that they know they're going to mess up a lot the first few times they do it. Because we're less concerned about the task as the only thing, but also the effect that it's producing in the people doing the task. And you accomplish making people like Jesus by having them proclaim Jesus and try to follow Jesus in some ways more effectively than if you just let the angels or the creation proclaim who you are. And I could be wrong on that, and at the end of the day, that's not the most important thing. The question is, are we committed to you? And help us to have the fervency that says, following Jesus is important, not just in the moments that are the perfect opportunity, but in all of the everyday moments that feel like, how in the world can I possibly do this? And those moments especially, I think, force us to depend on you. So help us to practice depending on you because we need you all the time. And help us to be diligent in serving you because we're supposed to be serving you all the time. Use us, Lord, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.